0: Hi, my name's Jim Hempel. I'm a filmmaker and film historian and Burt Reynolds' disciple. You're going to hear Dana and I talk at length about Mr. Reynolds in a few minutes, but I wanted to add a few thoughts about him and his passing since, in the time since we recorded this conversation, I was actually able to meet Burt and spend a couple glorious evenings with him. Earlier this year, Adam Rifkin directed a wonderful movie that Burt starred in called The Last Movie Star. And the American Cinematheque built a retrospective of Reynolds' finest work as an actor and director around that film's premiere. I was lucky enough to participate, interviewing Bert on stage following screenings of Gator and Smoking the Bandit in front of packed crowds who absolutely adored him. Bert was physically frail and needed a lot of help getting around. The punishment his body had taken in his youth when he was a football player, stuntman, and action hero had caught up with him. But as soon as we started talking about his films, about making his directorial debut on Gator or working with Jackie Gleason on Smokey and the Bandit or his friendships with Jerry Reed and Charles Durning, it was clear that his mind was as young and excitable as ever. Burt became a star largely because of his appearances on The Tonight Show, and over 40 years later he was still one of the great talkers I've ever met, a killer storyteller with wit, grace, and a surprising humility for a guy who, in the late 70s and early 80s, truly ruled the world. I had worshipped Burt for so long that I was genuinely terrified to meet him. I had heard horror stories about directors my age like Paul Thomas Anderson clashing with him, and I loved Reynolds and his work so much that there was a part of me that didn't want to do the Q&As. It would be better to keep my pristine image of him intact than to be disappointed if he was rude or indifferent toward me. Luckily, my fears were completely unjustified. He was as delightful in person as he had been on screen in Starting Over, Hooper, Best Friends, Smokey and the Bandit, and all those other movies where he made each person in the audience feel like they were his best friend, like you had some kind of secret together. We had a great time talking not only on stage, but privately in the wings. I think I'll treasure the memory of watching the end of *Smoking the Bandit with him forever, thinking of how he whispered self-effacing comments about his own performance to me, but then beamed with pride when the audience erupted with applause at the end. I was shocked to find that Burke felt he had blown it, that he had made more bad choices than good ones, and didn't think much of most of his own work deliverance seemed to be the one exception. For that reason, I was so, so glad he got to have the experience of spending several nights interacting with me and hundreds of other filmmakers, fans, and students who treasured his movie and the legacy he has now left behind. He seemed so filled with joy and pride after that Smokey and the Bandit screening, to the point that he didn't really want to leave. I hung out with him by his car for a while after the movie, along with some other fans and people from the Cinematheque, and told him if he ever needed anything to give me a call. I have no idea what exactly I thought I could have done for Burt Reynolds, but I felt like I owed him for the decades of entertainment and inspiration. My last memory of him as he got in the car to be driven away was Burt looking back as Cinematech programmer Grant Monninger told him to have a great night. I already have, Burt said. Then he drove off. He truly was the last movie star. Rest in peace, Bandit. I miss you.
1: Well there's a truck driving legend in the South today. A man called bandit from Atlanta GA. Ever hear Jamma knows his name. They swear he got ice water running in his veins. A foot like lead and nerves like steel. He's gonna go to glory riding 18 wheels. Oh boy, he left Atlanta back in 63, calling him a load up to Tennessee so hard couldn't even see the passing
2: lane. hello everyone and welcome to how is this movie my name is Dana Buckler and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen be sure to follow us on Twitter and instagram at how is this movie You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. You can always email us with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review and subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen. Welcome to the first episode of a new series I'm calling Icons. In these episodes, we'll take an in-depth look at a particular actor or filmmaker who has a body of work that will be forever timeless in film history. For the first episode, we'll be talking about a man who in the 1970s was easily the biggest movie star in the world, Burt Reynolds. In this episode, we'll be talking about Burt's film and TV career that spans more than 50 years. But first, here's just a little brief history on Burt before he got into acting. Burt Reynolds was born February 11, 1936, in Lansing, Michigan. When he was eight years old, his family moved to Riviera Beach in Florida, where his father was the chief of police. Now, Burt Reynolds was an accomplished football player who earned a scholarship to play halfback at Florida State University. Unfortunately, an injury in his sophomore year cut his football career short. While figuring out what to do next, Burt Reynolds worked as a police officer while also taking classes at the Palm Beach Junior College. It was while at this school, that Reynolds became active in the school's theater department. After doing numerous plays, he won a scholarship to the Hyde Park Playhouse in New York, and his acting career was off and running. You know, when I was planning this episode, I knew right away who I was going to ask to join me for this discussion. Jim Hemphill. Jim is a writer, director, film expert, and easily the biggest Burt Reynolds fan I know. Now, Jim was kind enough to take some time out of his busy schedule to talk all things Burt. This is also his fifth time on the podcast, and I am forever in awe of his wealth of film knowledge and history. Now, both of Jim's movies, Bad Reputation and The Trouble of the Truth, are both streaming now on Amazon Prime. So let's talk to Jim. All right, and I'm pleased to welcome back to the show Jim Hempel. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on How Is This Movie Again. This is now your fifth time on the show. We've talked about Burt Reynolds in previous episodes, so I think I want to start this discussion by asking one simple question. Who is Burt Reynolds to you?
0: Well, you know, it's it's changed over the years, and he was probably the first movie star that I really connected with and attached myself to as a kid. I mean, when I was young, you know, I went went to the movies a lot from about the age of three on um i went to a lot of movies but i didn't necessarily uh link up with one particular actor as like you know that's my identification figure that's the per- you know i didn't go to movies for actors i went to movies for the story you know most of the time when i was a real little kid it was mostly you know disney movies and, and things like that but i think the first burt reynolds movie i saw was in the theater was probably Smokey and the Bandit, and I was let's see, so I was five years old when Smokey and the Bandit came out. I think so. When I was five years old, my dad took me to see Smokey and the Bandit, and I think what I responded to in the Burt Reynolds persona at that point was, you know, the same thing a lot of people responded to, which was part of it is just the sort of infectious good naturedness. You know, Burt Reynolds. I, I often think a lot about Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood is kind of having parallel and occasionally intersecting careers you know they were both for for a period they were the two biggest movie stars in america i guess the world and they both have they're both very different in certain ways but very they also had a lot of parallels in their careers but one way they're different and, and clint eastwood was the other movie star who i was really into at the time you know i got into fairly early on too but the difference between burt reynolds and clint eastwood is you know burt always had this kind of inviting quality whereas you know, Eastwood was a little bit more forbidding. <laughs> and then he was a little more, uh, you, know, you know, Eastwood you were a little bit more afraid of. Burt Reynolds was somebody that you wanted to hang out at a barbecue with. And I think, you know, Smoking the Bandit, seeing that movie as a kid, it was just the sort of perfect convergence of, you know, the type of movie it was. Because, you know, as a five-year-old boy, I liked watching cars crash into each other and stunts and all that, which is a lot of what the movie was. Uh, but then his just, the, the the way he could kind of... Make the audience feel like you were his his best friend, like you were his buddy. I mean, I think that was one of the qualities he had, and and of course another quality he had in that movie that I think people really responded to is the sort of uh, just the the fact that he could you know he he could sort of triumph over everyone around him without breaking a sweat. You know, I think most people in their lives feel often as though they're surrounded by idiots or they're or they're under the you know thumb of authority figures whether it's their boss or or the cops or whoever who they think they know better than and i think the bandit character was always this guy uh and to a a certain extent the character he played before that gator and white lightning and gator was a guy who uh you know just kind of with ease just wiped the floor with those kind of people and so anyway i i saw that movie when i was about five years old smoking the bandit and, and responded to to Reynolds uh, and the movie itself and then to the point that Burt Reynolds became my imaginary friend. Um, you know, I had an imaginary friend when I was five, but it was Burt Reynolds. I would I would actually, you know, if, if, if I didn't want to do something, if my mom said, do you know, do you want to go to Ponderosa for dinner and I didn't want to, I would say, well, Burt says it's not very good or, <laughs> uh, you know, if I wanted to see you know, if I wanted to see Jaws two, I would say. But Bert says it's really good. He says it's really good. <laughs> and this this uh, issue of Bert being my imaginary friend was uh, exacerbated and strangely encouraged by my my mother. When for Christmas she made me a Burt Reynolds doll, Uh, this like four foot. At the time, it was bigger than me. Um, This this Burt this Burt Reynolds doll that became my sort of you know best friend through childhood that I kept with me. And so so anyway so yeah so Burt was my I, I took my Burt Reynolds obsession as a kid to a very strange place where I actually had a Burt Reynolds doll. He was my imaginary friend and. You know, that period, I sort of fell in love with Burt Reynolds at the same time that a lot of people did. I mean, he was a star before Smokey and the Bandit, but Smokey and the Bandit catapulted him to a whole new level and started this era where from 77 to 81 or 82, you know, he was basically the biggest movie star in the world with a little bit of competition from Clint Eastwood.
2: So let's take a look at the 1960s and let's kind of sort of chart the path that brings us to 1977. Taking a look at his work in the 1960s, is there anything that you would say was a standout role for him? Anything that kind of made him a blip on the map, someone to watch?
0: Well, you know, I think he... I mean, there there are movies of his that I actually really like from the 60s. He's very disparaging about a lot of his early stuff. And, you know, he it's he kicked around an awfully long time before he did become a star. I mean, he was, you know, I think in the 1950s, he was in a lot of TV stuff. You know, he he was in late 50s. He sort of got his big break as a regular on this TV show Riverboat. And then throughout the 60s, he kind of kicked around doing guest spots on, uh, you know, Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Twilight Zone and his, you know, his big Role, I guess, was in the you know from around 1962 to 65 or so. He was uh, on Gunsmoke. He was the he was Quint, the Native American blacksmith. And anyway, so he was kind of kicking around all through the 60s, doing these TV things. And again, thinking about the the Clint Eastwood parallel, you know, both Eastwood and Burt Reynolds started out under contract at Universal. There's sort of a famous story about how they both got fired on the same day. And the the story that Reynolds tells is that. The whoever fired them, you know, said to Clint Eastwood, you know, you'll never make as a star because your Adam's apple is too big. And they said to Burt Reynolds, you'll never make as a star because you can't act. And Reynolds, as they were walking out, Reynolds said to Eastwood, "Where you're you're really screwed because you know I can always learn to act, but you're never getting rid of that Adam's apple." (laughs) And anyway, they they after that, you know, they both kind of kicked around TV and 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 movies, but you know, and, and and again. In terms of the parallels, Reynolds had Gunsmoke. Eastwood's claim to fame was playing Rowdy Yates on Rawhide. Or was that his name, Rowdy Yates? I I don't remember which character he was. But anyway, he was on Rawhide. But Eastwood kind of uh, took off faster than Reynolds. Uh, Obviously, in the movies, he, somewhere around 63, uh, did 62, 63, 64, somewhere in there, did the spaghetti westerns, did Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more, and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And those made Eastwood... Uh, an international star, Reynolds uh, was sort of trying to follow the same path. He did a movie in 1966 called Navajo Joe, with Sergio Corbucci, who is not in the house, you know, not the household name among cinephiles that Sergio Leone is, but was a great Italian Western director. He did a lot of movies like the original Django and The Great Silence, and you know, several really fantastic movies. And for me, Navajo Joe is kind of the first Burt Reynolds movie where you see Reynolds. You see the potential for the star he was going to be. He plays – he has very little dialogue in it. He plays this, this Native American guy who's uh, – it's, it's kind of a revenge movie. You know, Reynolds is a great physical presence in that movie. It doesn't have – doesn't have the sense of humor yet. But one thing it really showcases is his physicality. You know, Reynolds was a guy who a lot of actors, there's the sort of cliche where they say they do their own stunts and all that. And Reynolds did do a lot of his own stunts, especially early on. And even once he hooked up with Hal Needham, who was probably the greatest stuntman in the history of business or one of them, Reynolds would still kind of push it. He would do as much as he could. He likes to do Really physical things on camera, and Navajo Joe has a lot of that. There's some really great fight scenes, and there's some there's this scene where he's hanging upside down and kind of pulls himself up, and it's clearly Reynolds doing it, and it's not something I think a lot of other actors could have pulled off. And, and anyway, he Navajo Joe is kind of the, the, the sort of breakthrough. I think watch for me watching it now, I think that's where you see him coming into his own. But it wasn't necessarily. I don't think it was a huge hit. It certainly wasn't the Fistful of Dollars level phenomenon he wanted it to be but all during this period in the 60s the mid 60s and into the late 60s Reynolds was kind of becoming a household name not just because of not necessarily because of the parts he had but because of his appearances on talk shows you know he would he would go on the tonight show and I I can't remember which what what other ones if it was I don't know if if Mike Douglas was on yet or, or but I know there were or Dick Cavett I know he was on Dick Cavett a lot he would he would go on Dick Cavett and the tonight show and things like that in the late 60s and early 70s and so You know, even when his movies weren't – he was kind of becoming a star before his movies caught up with him. Um, You know, the other 1960s movie that I would say is somewhat significant is the one he did after Namaha Joe, which is a movie he did in 1969 called A Hundred Rifles. And that's a, a Western directed by a very good, very underrated Western director, Tom Grice. And it starred Reynolds, Jim Brown, and uh, Raquel Welch. And, but I think that movie, and Reynolds is great in that, too. And that's, I think, 100 Rifles is where you start sort of start to see the smile. And you see that, he, you know, that one, he's kind of the comic sidekick. It's Jim Brown. Jim Brown is really the star of the movie. And the movie was probably... More known at the time for having this kind of interracial love scene between Jim Brown and Raquel Welch that was at that point still a little bit daring. It's probably better known for that than for Reynolds. But Reynolds as the sidekick, you know, he's kind of got that smart aleck charm. That's the first time I think in movies – that you start to see that. So I guess, you know, the long answer to your question about the 60s as Navajo Joe Hundred Rifles and then he did a movie called Sam Whiskey right after Hundred Rifles, which was another western where he plays a kind of con man. And I think that I think slowly he was kind of figuring out or other people were figuring out that the Burt Reynolds screen persona was this kind of combination of an action hero with the affable fellow that everybody was falling in love with on talk shows. Let's talk
2: a little bit about 1972's Deliverance. I mean, this is a movie that notorious for a number of different reasons. Uh, I recently watched it, rewatched it last year when I did an episode on the uh, on the film. And he is one cool customer in that movie. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm wondering, you know, how his performance was received. I mean, because this was, I mean, this was a very very serious movie with a very serious tone. Just talk a little bit about Deliverance and sort of what it did for his career.
3: we do anything for him. No. Sent a shot. I thought they'd surely kill us. They would have. They would have for sure. What are we going to do with him? There's not one thing to do take the body down to entry, turn over the highway patrol, tell them what happened. Tell them what? Exactly. It's
4: just what happened. This is a justifiable homicide, if anything is. They They were sexually assaulting two members of our party at gunpoint. Like you said, there was nothing else we could do.
3: Is he alive? Not now. Well, let's get our heads together. Come on, Al, let's not do anything foolish. Anybody know anything about the law? look I I was on jury duty once it wasn't a murder trial A murder trial well I don't know the technical word for it Drew but I know this you take this man down out of the mountains and turn him over to the sheriff there's gonna be a trial all right a trial by jury so what We killed a man, Drew Shot him in the back A mountain man Cracker Gives us something to consider All right Consider it, we're listening Shit, all these people are related But goddamned if I want to come back up here And stand trial with this man's aunt and his uncle Maybe his mom and his daddy Sitting in the jury box What do you think, Bobby? How about you, Ed?
4: I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. Now, you listen, Lewis. I don't know what you got in mind. But if you try to conceal this body, you're setting yourself up for a murder charge. Now, that much law, I do know!
2: This ain't one of your fucking
3: games!
2: You killed somebody!
3: There he is! I see him, Drew. That's right, I kill somebody. But you're wrong if you don't see this as a game. Lewis. Are you listening, Ed? Damn it, we can get out of this thing without any questions asked. We get connected up with that body and the law. This thing's going to be hanging over us the rest of our lives. We got to get rid of that guy. Just how are you going to do that, Lewis? Where? Anywhere. Everywhere.
0: Nowhere. Yeah, well, deliverance really made him. I mean, it was the movie after that long run in the late 50s and 60s of banging around TV and doing movies that weren't necessarily huge phenomenons. Deliverance definitely is the movie that brought him up to a new level. And speaking to the talk show thing, you know, that's how he got cast. John Borman didn't cast him in Deliverance because of other movies he had seen or TV shows. He cast for Reynolds because he saw him on The Tonight Show. And he saw that confidence in Reynolds. Because by this point, by 1972, Reynolds was not only a regular guest on The Tonight Show, he would guest host it when Carson won the night off or the week off or whatever. And so Reynolds, uh, Borman saw Reynolds guest hosting the tonight show and thought, my God, look at that, you know, confidence and charisma and met with him, And, you know, John Voigt was the star in deliverance at the time. You know, Reynolds was definitely by far the second, banana in terms of billing and then ned Beatty and ronnie cox i think it was their first movie it had never even been in anything but anyways so we cast reynolds based on that tonight show hosting and you know reynolds i think reynolds performance in that movie established a lot it really or solidified a lot of like like sort of the two sides of him because i think with reynolds he's an interesting star in that they're kind of two different burt reynolds over the years um as opposed to somebody like clint eastwood again where you know Eastwood is, uh, he's he's got a persona that he sticks to pretty rigidly from 1963 to Gran Torino. I mean, it, it it really there are little variations on it, but he doesn't go that far away from it. You know, and and Reynolds kind of has the two sides. He's got the kind of the good old boy side that's in and with the smile that's in things like Smokey and the Bandit and Cannonball Run and you know Hooper and Best Little Whorehouse in Texas and and things like that. But then there's this other Burt Reynolds that's a little darker, and, you know, the, dark, the Burt Reynolds of Sharky's Machine and Hustle, and and that comes back hard later in movies like Stick and Malone and Heat, you know, and, and the kind of the unsmiling Burt Reynolds. And the thing about Burt Reynolds is he was kind of this symbol, of, I think, for a lot of people, of sort of ultimate masculinity. But then a lot of his most interesting movies, the ones that have aged really well, are the ones. Where he's a little bit emasculated or that masculinity is is challenged either in a serious way in the way it is in deliverance or in a comic way in some of his later like the romantic comedies and things like that um like at long last love so anyway deliverance you kind of get you kind of get both because the first half of the movie where he's you know the the sort of the strong he's sort of the hero uh and then the movie shifts and i mean i i I don't want to give it away for the five people listening as who have never seen Deliverance, but he, you know, it basically the way his, his character, the second half of the movie, it kind of, um, you know, it shifts from him to John Voight. And a lot of the Burt Reynolds confidence is kind of is kind of eroded. And in fact, Borman said to to Reynolds and Voight, he said to Reynolds when he cast him in the movie, he said, John Voight is going to give this movie to you in the first half of the movie and he needs to and he's going to because he's a generous actor but you need to give the movie back to John Voight in the second half um, and that's kind of what he did and anyway so speaking to your question about how this was all perceived the interesting thing is Reynolds You know, the, he he possibly shot himself in the foot a little bit because I mean he was I do think Deliverance established him as a serious actor and it definitely made him a star in a way he wasn't before because the movie was a massive hit And it was critically acclaimed, and it went up for Best Picture, I think, and Best Director. It went up for several Academy Awards. Uh, However, right before the movie came out, you know, Reynolds famously posed for a nude centerfold for Cosmo magazine. And he did it as kind of a joke, kind of a statement, like kind of thinking, saying, well, if women are going to be treated like objects, it should be okay for men to be treated like objects. And it was, it it was a huge sensation at the time, but the the magazine came out right before the movie deliverance was released. And I think to a certain extent it overshadowed, I think had that, had he not done that centerfold and he, and he now says it's like one of the great regrets of his life that he did it. And I, I don't know that it ruined him or anything, but I do think had he not done that centerfold deliverance, he probably would have gone up for an Oscar for it. You know, I, I think at the top, it, he certainly I, I think he, it would have catapulted him into serious roles faster. He probably would have had more of the kind of career in a way, possibly than a Nicholson or somebody like that had. Um but I think what happened was people said, well, this guy can't possibly be serious about himself or his acting if he's posing naked in Cosmo. And so there was – so he was acclaimed for the performance. I mean certainly all the critics recognized that it was a great performance. The audiences responded to him. It made him a big star. But I do think there was, it, it, there was just a little – it was somewhat compromised a little bit by this idea that people thought he they, – they, At the same time as his greatest triumph, there was also this thing that made him look like a joke.
2: Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the films between Deliverance and 1977's Smokey and the Bandit. Particularly, I want to look at his role as Gator in both White Lightning and Gator. Now, I'm wondering if the role of Gator was sort of tailor-made for Burt Reynolds. You know, as I mentioned in the intro, he was raised in Florida, he's from the South. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, is that sort of the genesis of him portraying, you know, a number of different characters from the Southeastern United States?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think Deliverance sort of was the beginning of that. And then White Lightning was really the movie where he, if he, you know, he figured out that that was gonna be like his big thing was kind of embracing his background and, and you know and he he talks about this in his book a little bit about how he was never happy with the way the south was portrayed in movies he didn't like the way that uh southern you know he thought he thought that filmmakers condescended to the south and i, and I think that that's actually part of why he became a, a big movie star in things like smoking the bandit you know later i mean i think that i, I do think that audiences you know, in the South and, and and even in the Midwest, to a certain—I mean, basically working-class audiences—I think responded to something in him where they could tell he wasn't uh, talking down to them or condescending to them. And and White Lightning was the beginning of that. I, I don't know enough about the production history of that movie to know if it was tailored to him or if he just came on and made it his own. I mean, it certainly feels like it was tailored to him um you know it's a movie for people who haven't seen it replays this this kind of uh moonshiner and it's it's a little bit of a dry run for something like Smokey and the bandit but it's it's uh it's very you know think about white lightning and the sequel gator which is actually far superior i mean i like white lightning but i think gator is a really great movie white lightning uh, you know it, it's the first of something like 11 movies that he shot in uh, Georgia, I think you know. So, so they shot in the South, but I think specifically Georgia. He really loved shooting in Georgia, and he really loved uh, taking advantage of the locals uh, as you know for the the secondary roles and the the extras and things like that. And there's just this real sense of authenticity in that movie. When you watch White Lightning now, you know there's a famous story that Billy Bob Thornton, when he met Burt Reynolds, told him that where he came from, they thought Smokey and the Bandit was a documentary, <laughs> and White Lightning feels almost like a documentary of the South in that in that period in, in the 70s and it was kind of um you know it, I, I think it was another step forward for him in terms of his star persona like you know because after deliverance he did um he had like a cameo in woody allen's everything always wanted to go about sex and uh he's in actually a really great movie right before white lightning called the man who loved cat dancing that's one of my all-time favorite westerns and one of my very favorite burt Reynolds movies but i don't know that it was i don't know if that was like a big hit i don't think it really took off. White Lightning was pretty successful and kind of, it did establish that whole southern persona, which I think the Longest Yard, the movie he did after it, uh, furthered a little bit as well. I mean, you know, he kind of has this. That whole period between Deliverance and Smokey and the Bandit is is a kind of interesting. You know, it's an interesting period where the it's it's kind of ups and downs commercially. Like he he did a lot of movies in there that I think were not successful. Like Lucky Lady um, and and at Long Last Love, which again I actually am a big apologist for at Long Last Love, which is the Peter Bogdanovich musical he did with Sybil Shepherd and Madeline Kahn, and and it was uh, it was kind of a disaster at the time, and and. No one involved with it speaks fondly of it now. But I think that's partly because their perception – I think Reynolds and, you know, the other actors, I think they, they look back on it harshly, both because it was unsuccessful at the box office, but also because it was such a miserable movie to shoot. Because the whole conceit of it Long Last Love is that Bogdanovich wanted to record all the the musical numbers live. He didn't want the actors lip-syncing to a track. So – They would have, and he wanted most of the musical numbers done in like one take, like one unbroken shot. So it was a miserable movie to shoot for the actors because they basically had a full orchestra on the stage right next to them. And then they're mic'd and they have to sing their lines live while they're acting, while they're accommodating Bogdanovich's you know elaborately choreographed camera that won't cut and so every time somebody stumbles or somebody drops a penny on the set or a car drives by they got to redo the whole thing over and over again and it was and i think everybody hated that experience and everybody at the time you know in the press thought Bogdanovich was being ridiculously indulgent and the movie got a lot of bad press and a lot of bad re- reviews but i actually think it's quite a, an excellent Movie and I think what makes it great is exactly the result of what Bogdanovich was doing, which is it feels a little bit like an improvised musical at times. Like Burt Reynolds and Sybil Shepherd, you really feel them responding to each other in this during the songs in a way that you don't feel if you're watching a conventional musical. And, I, and and I think Reynolds is very charming in it. And it's a movie I would sort of I would highly recommend. Although I know a lot of people think I'm insane whenever I say how how great it is. And 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 I also, you know, I'm happy to talk about it for a second here just to get on record that Bogdanovich did that 30 years or so before Les Miserables where they got all that, you know, a couple years ago, Tom Hooper and all the jackasses who made Les Miserables were going around taking credit for being, you know claiming they were the first movie that musical to shoot the musical numbers live and, uh, you know, Bogdanovich did it before them, Barbara Streisand did it in Yentl, so that's but, but I, I digress, anyway They don't like a dip they don't
3: like If a bomb fell right outside, they just give it that look and go right on dancing. Oh, of course. And you know, when you're out in smart society Um, and you suddenly get bad news, you mustn't show anxiety and proceed to sing the blues. For example, tell me something sad, something awful, something grave. And I'll show you how a racquet club lad
1: would behave. Okay. Have you heard? The coast of Maine Just got hit by a hurricane Well, did
5: you... What a swell party this is
3: Perfect! Have you heard that Uncle Newt Forgot to open his parish Well, did you ever What a swell party this
4: is Precisely! It's great! It's
1: grand! It's Wonderland It's Tops! It's
0: first! It's, too bad. it's what soup, what fish. So he did all these movies, <laughs> uh, you know, and then he did a movie also between, he did a movie in 1975 called Hustle that's very good with Catherine Deneuve that's a film noir directed by Robert Aldrich that's also one of my favorite Burt Reynolds movies, you know, and he, and he so he's doing all these kind of, and he did another Bogdanovich movie, Nickelodeon, which I, which was not, which was also another good movie, wasn't a big hit. And in, and in, in the midst of all that, in that 1972 to 77 period, uh, you know, White Lightning was—I, I, you know—that was probably his biggest success. It was certainly b- big enough to inspire a sequel, which was Gator, which we made in 1976. And Gator was the first movie that Reynolds directed. Hey, it's a nice swap you got here.
3: Where are they? We got them. My name's Irving Greenfield you thinking about putting up some condominiums out here are you i don't find that very funny at all what do you want sometime i just did some time. i know twice bet your ass i did oh no no you bet yours in fact you did better twice and you lost
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> what do you want Bama McCall. Bama McCall? Yeah. I never heard of him. He's uh, having quite a time in Dunstan County. Prostitution, extortion, bribery. What makes you think I'm going to help you nail Bama McCall? Well, if you don't want your old man to be in jail for moonshining and your little girl to be shelling around from one foster home to another, you will.
5: You think you got me by the short hairs, don't you? Yes, I do.
3: It's incredible what this guy's got going for him. Eh? $20,000 in back taxes, and it's all we can prove, but that's just minor. But we could use it to put him on commission. Get the picture. Yeah, I get the picture. How do I know all that crap down in the papers, too? Look, if he's clean, you can prove it. If he's not,
0: here's your chance to find out. And I kind of wish Reynolds had directed more movies, because I really like... I've seen, I, don't, I haven't seen – he directed one in somewhere around 2000 that I've never seen. But the movies he directed between 76 and 85, um, I think they're all really interesting movies. And I think he had a pretty strong directorial, directorial persona. And Gator has a lot more flavor to it than White Lightning, and it's got a lot more sort of visual panache. I mean, it was – and it's – and Gator sort of establishes this – there's this other side of burt reynolds that's kind of a weird running motif in a lot of his movies and i guess it starts in hustle but where he plays these kind of white knight characters rescuing fallen women Um you know, there's a lot of movies where burt is a cop or somehow rescuing uh, you know, prostitutes or women who have been kind of enslaved and that's in hustle it's in gator it's in sharky's machine it's in i there's a little bit of it in um in stick uh there's it's in this movie he did later called heat that's really good but anyway gator is an interesting movie because he 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 was sort of um you know it established him as a really interesting director and yet he claims that he didn't he wanted to direct more and didn't because gator was so successful that it led to him getting all these act offers as an actor that he felt like he couldn't churn down and so he basically kind of you know it, he was he only directed intermittently because of that but I, but I also, I always take everything Burt Reynolds says about his career with a little bit of a grain, a grain of salt um because he's you know the 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 weird thing about his whole career it it's it's just so um you know it's so much more inconsistent than someone like Eastwood who I think I think Eastwood figured out early on that the key to his longevity was going to be to not chase the money and not do movies because they were shooting in tahiti or whatever you know i mean i think he really legitimately just did the movies that he thought were going to be good and 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 did them with the people he thought were going to you know he was going to enjoy working with and reynolds has admitted that he chased a lot of paychecks he did a lot of movies because of uh the you know the locations or you know how cushy they were whatever and you know he's he's one of those actors who's as famous for the movies he churned down as he is for the ones that he um you know he took i mean well, we'll we, we can get to it in the 80s but you know probably most one of the most famous examples is that he turned down the part that jack nicholson won an oscar for in terms of endearment to do stroke or ace which has got to be one of the all-time <laughs> bad decisions ever made by an actor and and you know even around this time we're talking about uh he was offered one flew over the cuckoo's nest and for some mm-hmm. reason didn't didn't do it um but any, which, I guess, takes us up to, to back up to Smokey and the Bandit.
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, now it's 1977. And speaking of Smokey and the Bandit, I don't know if a lot of people realize that, well, for example, the highest grossing film of 1977 was, of course, Star Wars. And it was also the highest grossing film of all time when it came out. But I think a lot of people don't realize that the second highest grossing film for 1977 was Smokey and the Bandit. And I posit that if Star Wars had not come out, then I imagine that Smokey and the Bandit probably would have been the highest grossing film of that year. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the phenomenon that was Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, this sort of kicked off a, uh, uh, an ongoing working relationship with uh, stuntman-turned-director Hal Needham. So let's just talk a little bit about, you know, how big Smokey and the Bandit was.
4: See, son? Old legends never die. They just lose weight. Like a legend and an out-of-work bum look
2: a lot alike,
4: daddy. (laughs) Bandit, me and my son are here.
5: (laughs) Oh, I love your suits. They must be a bitch getting a size 68 extra fat and a 12 dwarf
4: I came to make a deal Uh, what's he get if he wins this truck rodeo thing if $5,000
5: Debbie.
4: chicken shit money
5: just what the hell you want anyway
4: you to get out of this dumbass rodeo and accept a real challenge
3: now get the Texarkana
5: and back in 28 hours that's no problem it ain't never been done before, hot shit. Watch your language, little lady. The problem is that Coors beer. You take that east of Texas, and that's uh, that's bootlegging. You, I believe you're just a little bit scared. That's great psychology. Why don't you just say something bad about my mother?
4: Your mama is so look, ugly. Look, look, you make this run for me. Now these Peterbilt's here are worth eighty thousand dollars. That comes to about three grand an hour if you make it twenty-eight hours how about that for a challenge dad I don't believe that that's wait, mine, wait a minute son.
5: wait a minute why do you want that beer so bad because he's thirsty dummy you see I
4: got a boy running tomorrow in the southern classic and uh, when he wins I want to celebrate in style how much style well I got a few friends and me uh, 400 cases well well let me see your cash Big Enos' word is gold. All right, show him the cash. Go ahead, little.
5: Shit. Well, I see, there's uh, 400 cases of fear. I'll need the cash for that. No problem. Go ahead, boy. New car. I got to have a new car to block for the truck, you know. Okay, go ahead, boy. I'd like to kick his ass just once. Speedy car.
0: Than that. Go ahead.
5: <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, it definitely, you know, made Hal Needham. Hal Needham before Smokey the Bandit was a stunt man and stunt coordinator, and he was, you know, sort of at the time, he was probably the the best. Stunt man since Yakima Knut who, you know, did, you know, Yakima Knut did the most famous, probably the most famous stunt in the history movies and Stagecoach where he uh, gets, slides under all the horses and all that so that, that whole thing and, and the stunt that Spielberg sort of ripped off Raiders Lost Ark he did with a truck, which to me is not as impressive as doing it under a bunch of horses, but anyway uh, Needham was kind of the heir to Yakima Knut's throne and Needham was Burt Reynolds stunt man and stunt coordinator on things like White Lightning and Gator, and they were also you know best pals there's a documentary that people may have seen um, and if they haven't it's it's kind of a it's kind of fun to check out this documentary called the bandit that's basically about Needham and Reynolds friendship and they were um, they were best friends they were they were drinking buddies they li- they were roommates for years when they were both bachelors uh, Needham moved into Reynolds pool house or whatever and they just basically partied for several years together um, and Needham one day you know in the Mid '70s, I uh, came to Reynolds and gave him this script for Smokey and the Bandit. Needham and a friend had written this script. Needham wanted to direct, and he gave the script to, to Bert. And Bert, uh, the the story is that Bert read it and said, "You know, it's got the worst dialogue I've ever read." But you know, he saw that there was a situation there that could be be used and he told Needham basically if you can you know you can use my name and if you can raise the money based on my name to make this movie you can direct it and you know that was only indulged by Universal because Burt Reynolds had just done Gator which was a big hit and so you know they wanted to be in the Burt Reynolds business they didn't particularly want to be in the Hal Needham business you know but it but it made Needham it was it was just because of the fact that like you say it was a number two box office hit and it it was a phenomenon It created you know there was that there, there had been movies like that i mean you know there had been car crash movies and southern you know moonshine movies and all that kind of stuff roger corman and place you know there were and, and they but but this was kind of the one the first one i think that became this international hit i mean you know like some of the earlier movies like that there was this whole kind of um you know southern circuit of you know these movies that were kind of did well in the south um, you know, like the Walking Tall movies. I guess those are a little different. But you know, there were these movies that did well in the South that were kind of very tailored to the South and had the the car crashes and moonshine and all that. But they, they didn't necessarily break out to become national hits or, or international hits the way Smoky and the Bandit did. And so and and you know, once Smokey and the Bandit came out, it, it kicked off a whole bunch of car crash comedies. And then of and then and then um, it, it you know here in America, it, it really created this whole cb craze which i don't even know how to explain that now to people like what that was all about because it was so, but but i mean i remember you know my dad had a cb radio in his car we all everybody wanted to be talking on their cb radios to each other because that was kind of the the technology and smoking in the band you know today i guess the bandit and uh jerry reed would be communicating by cell phones or something it wouldn't quite be as 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 fun but it but he created this whole cb radio phase you know it it, it uh again made Bert the most Famous movie star in the world, and and I think you know the whole Hal Needham thing. It, you know, it, it, it. When Reynolds went into decline as a star in the eighties, it was partly due to his loyalty to Needham, which is an admirable quality. But you know, Needham is not was not a great director. I mean he he was great at one thing. He was great at staging stunts and car crashes, but. You know, and, and Smokey and the Bandit was kind of a perfect storm of Needham's talents, Reynolds' star power, you know, what the culture just wanted to see at that particular moment, Jackie Gleason as the bad guy. Everything just kind of came together in that movie. But, you know, it wasn't a formula that was – it wasn't easily repeatable. I mean, none of the movies after Smokey and the Bandit that Needham and Reynolds did together – I mean, Hoop, they, they got progressively lesser, I think, as they went. I mean, Hooper is a pretty good movie. But um, – you know, but but again, that whole thing of Reynolds being so loyal to Needham, and 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 I mean, and and again, that he in his book he claims that he turned down a part to do Smokey in the Bandit for Needham that would have gotten him an Academy Award. He doesn't say what the part is though, so I have no idea what he's talking about. And I don't know if he's talking about Cuckoo's Nest or what. But you know, I think the, the the two things, and I guess we'll we'll get to this as we get into the '80s. The two things that ended up being Reynolds' downfall: one is admirable, which is his loyalty, and the other is. Is not so admirable, which is just his his greed. That I think he he was taking parts purely based on how much money they offered him. When when you know he probably didn't really need the money anymore, but it, you know if they would if they were going to throw more money at him to do something like Stroker Ace than to do Terms of Endearment, he was going to do uh, Stroker Ace. But but anyway, yeah yeah. I mean it is hard. Smokey and the Bandit at the time when I was a kid, when I was five, when that Star Wars came out they were kind of interchangeable to me like to me those were the two phenomenon movies of that year i mean those were the movies that me and my friends saw over and over again and it was insane how popular that movie was
2: so no question there you absolutely love Smokey and the bandit as did most everyone but take me through if you will your experiences with Smokey and the bandit 2 first seeing it as a kid in 1980 and how the film holds up for you now.
0: Well, I have to admit, I've never had the courage to revisit it, um, because I've always suspected it's probably rough going. But I, uh, and my impression of it as a kid is a little bit colored because of the personal stuff that was going on, you know, in my life at the time. It came out, I guess, the summer 1980. Is that when it came out? Yeah. Um, So I, the summer of 79, August of 79, uh, I had a younger sister who died when she was four years old, and that had sort of a which was a you know kind of a key key moment in my life in a lot of ways and and including in my in my love of movies, I was a movie nut before then, but i I think movies after that they became not just you know my hobby or my form of fun, they became what saved my life. I mean it was kind of like that was my Escape because uh, you know after my sister died it was you know it was, it was hard on my parents it was hard on the family my you know my I think my parents were really st- struggling to keep keep it t- together and you know so there was sort of a it was a rough year for the family and smoking the Man at Two came out kind of I saw it on a vacation with my parents we went to uh, Memphis Tennessee and you know at that time I think my mom was still working through the loss of my sister and her and my dad were working through it. The- marriage and as a kid I wasn't completely conscious of all that but I could feel it like there was just something that felt different in the family and that was you know and and again I just kind of fled to movies to escape it and so we were in Memphis Tennessee and and the main thing I remember was that I was so excited that Smokey and the Bandit 2 was playing there because it hadn't opened in Chicago yet where I lived like we lived in the suburbs of Chicago and at that time believe it or not a movie like smoking the bandit 2 still would open regionally it didn't necessarily it it still wasn't quite to that point where every studio release had a wide release and would open on four or five thousand screens all at once like like they would still smoking Bandit* 2 opened in the south before it opened in the midwest so i was really excited when we went on vacation and realized oh my god we can go see smokey and the bandit 2 it's playing here uh so i remember mostly i remember that i remember liking the movie i remember that my favorite thing about the movie then and now is still the song that's in it by Burt Reynolds. Let's do something cheap and superficial, which uh, I thought was a great, a great song, and I still have the, the forty-five of it um, someplace. But you know, even as a kid, I f- I felt a little bit with that movie. Like I liked it, but I felt like this is kind of a pale imitation of what they did the first time. Around. You could feel that they were going through the motions a little bit. I mean, it all had something to do with an elephant. I, I, don't, I don't even remember what the hell it was. <laughs> something about them transporting an elephant. And as a kid, I you know I could feel feel it running out of steam a little bit and, you know, n- knowing now what I know about Burt Reynolds and Sally Field's relationship it kind of explains a little bit of the chemistry in it because, you know, by that point they were kind of on the outs and she was really resenting doing what she saw as these crappy movies just because she was with Burt Let that smoky can handle a legendary bandit just driving along at Old double nickel
3: Maybe he doesn't know who the legendary bandit is
1: Doubtful I'm what you call now your basic things.
3: Basic things. Yeah, yeah. Hey, <laughs> you gotta be careful with women like that. Yeah?
1: Yeah, they start off, they just want your autograph. Next thing you know, they want to tear your clothes off, then they want your body.
3: You're kidding. No,
1: I wouldn't get about things like that, you know. You don't joke about you know, people taking your clothes off. No,
3: no, golly, it must be hard. What? Being a superstar.
1: I'll tell you something, honey, sometimes it's, you know, Is it? Yeah. I don't know, you feel like a freak, you
3: know? Probably. You know, I've been
1: thinking and... And I, I'd rather just have your autograph.
5: As opposed to what?
1: Ripping your clothes off.
5: Why?
3: Well, I've seen you with your clothes off, remember? Yeah, of course I remember. It ain't no big deal.
0: But I've I've never revisited. I almost I actually was pondering watching it yesterday. Uh, I was going to try to revisit it to prepare for this podcast, and I and I just ended up watch I ended up watching it Long Last Love again instead. Um, so I so I can't really speak to whether it holds up for me now. But a, a lot of the Burt Reynolds movies from that early '80s period uh, I haven't seen since, like Smoking Abandoned Two. I haven't seen. Uh, Stroker Ace. Since I haven't seen uh, the Cannonball Run movies in a long time, um, partly because I did enjoy all of them as a kid, and I think there's part of me that you know doesn't necessarily want the. I, I, I don't suspect they're going to be like some of the, you know, the the Clint Eastwood movies that that I look at now, and I'm like, oh, those have really improved with age. They're still good. I don't know if that's going to happen with those. I mean, it happens with certain Burt Reynolds movies, like Sharky's Machine, which I thought was incredible as a kid, and I now, and I think is even better now. In fact, I don't even understand how I could have possibly understood it when I was a kid. But anyway, that's my long answer to my my Smokey and the Bandit two uh, story.
2: Do you have any comment on Smokey and the Bandit three?
0: You know, I've never seen it. Um, I. I think I was, even as a kid, I was somewhat, uh... I, I smelled that they were trying to pull one over on me when I you know, realized that <laughs> Burt Reynolds was only in it for about thirty seconds. I think I think I remember as a kid watching it might have been Siskel and Ebert. I was watching some movie review show. I think it was Siskel and Ebert uh, where they reviewed *Smoking the Band at three and you know said basically this is Burt Reynolds is in he he drives on screen smiles and drives off and that's it. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm not going to go see that. And so I never I never saw *Smoking Band at three. I, there's there are a few holes in my. As much as I love Bill there, there I haven't seen all of them. There's still a few. And and one of these days I'd like to see – I actually – I'd like to revisit Smokey Bandit 2. I'd like to see Smokey Bandit 3. There's this – I'm always tempted. Every time I walk into, like, a Target or a Walmart, I'm always tempted by this DVD I see. There's this seven-movie pack that's called, like, the, I don't know, the Bandit something or other pack. And it has the three Smoky in the Bandit movies. And it's got these four made-for-TV Smokey and the Bandit movies – that Hal Needham did that were like I that I'd never even heard of, or so I don't even remember when these things aired. But Hal Needham directed four or more Smokey and the Bandit movies after Smokey and the Bandit three that are on this DVD pack, and I'm always tempted to buy it as an impulse buy and watch it and see what those are all about. But I, I've never quite brought myself to do it.
2: So before we really dive deep into the 1980s for Burt Reynolds, can we kind of, I guess, wrap up the working relationship between Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds? I mean, I'm talking about, of course, you know, we mentioned Smoky and the Bandit 2. There was Stroker Ace and Cannonball and Cannonball Run 2. Uh, How long did that working relationship last for?
0: You know, as far as I as far as I know, it was I I think Cannonball Run 2 was was kind of the end of it, Um, you know, because I think I don't I don't think Needham. Uh, unless i'm missing one i don't think he directed anything with reynolds after that and i don't know that and i don't think he was necessarily working with him as a stunt guy because i mean you know reynolds made start he he kind of had a shift where he made very different kinds of movies uh because the movie he made after cannibal run 2 was city heat which uh you know he started with Clint eastwood and that was a big deal at the time you know finally but reynolds and Clint Eastwood working together and it was kind of a problem plagued production but the biggest thing that happened on city heat that really kind of hurt reynolds and hurt his career was that there was a stunt on that movie where a stunt man hit him in the face with a chair and mistimed it and did it with a real chair instead of a balsa wood chair and all that and basically broke reynolds jaw and reynolds kind of fought through and did the shot the rest of the movie but the injury took its toll on him and he had all these problems were then with after that it came from that having the jaw broken and he couldn't eat for a while and lost all this weight and then you know there were all these rumors that he had aids and it was a um, you know it was a time when there was a lot of ignorance about what aids was and how it was caused and and there was a big cultural stigma attached to it and it really is kind of what killed reynolds as a major movie star was this this thing where he uh the national Enquirer and these tabloids and everything were kind of spreading these aids rumors and then he was he wasn't working as much because he he had the injury and. Um, and then he got some kind of – I don't know if it was connected to that injury, that he got some sort of bad ear infection and that kept him from doing a couple of movies. And so anyway, by the time he came back, he was kind of done with the action comedies. He never really uh, – um, you know, went, he never really did those again. And so, so him and Needham, they didn't really work together anymore. But as far as I know, I think they remained very, very good friends. Uh, until the day Needham died, which was, you know, a couple years ago, not that long after he got uh, an Oscar for he got like a governor's award from the Academy for a Lifetime Achievement Award, which was kind of funny because Needham, you know, his whole running thing, he would say his whole life when he got crappy reviews for all the Smokey the Bandit movies and stuff like that is he would say, well, I'm never going to win an Oscar, but I'm going to make a boatload of money. And, you know, he did end up winning an Oscar, which <laughs> one of I think I think one of the only two stuntmen who did. I think maybe Yakima got one of those, too. But.
2: So taking the Hal Needham films out of the equation, let's dissect the 80s a little bit more.
0: I mean, and the, and the thing with the 80s that's interesting with Burt Reynolds is, you know, if you look over his filmography, you know, I think there's this sort of narrative about Reynolds, which is partly true, which is that he, you know, he destroyed his career just doing things like Cannonball, Cannonball Run and Stroker Ace and Cannonball Run 2. I mean, although, you know, Cannonball Run was a hit, and I think Stroker Ace may even have done okay to a certain degree, but he kind of lost, he kind of lost the fans and he certainly lost the critics doing all these these junky movies. But he also, you know, he never mit, he never went more than a year or two without doing something that was really good, too. I mean, even going back to the late 70s, you know, after Smoking the Bandit, between Smoking the Bandit and Hooper, you know, he did Semi-Tough, which is a pretty good Michael Ritchie movie with Chris Christopherson and Jill Clayburgh. And he did The End, which is a really good movie that he directed. And then after Hooper he did Starting Over, which is a great movie. I mean I mean like flat out fantastic. Screenplay by James L. Brooks directed by alan pecula a romantic comedy that is um you know fantastic and that, and that pattern even in the 80s again like he did you know sharky's machine and and best friends with goldie hawn which was written by barry levinson and you know like it's a lot of good movies anyway but and and he directed and he, and he uh, appeared in the man who loved women in 1983 which was directed by blake edwards and is a good movie although i think it was commercially did not do well so it's kind of seen as part of this streak that that where he fell off the the top but anyway stick um You know, it was the first movie he did after City Heat. And, you know, it's kind of one of the – he kind of had this series. I don't know if it's Bad Luck or him or what. You know, probably a combination of both that he had these kind of problem plagued movies starting with city heat you know because city heat aside from the injury there was also a whole issue where the original director on it was blake edwards um hubert had just worked with with man who loved women and blake edwards was going to direct it and clint eastwood fired him basically eastwood didn't like edwards and they they did not get along and and edwards took a pseudonym for writing the movie on city heat screenplay credit is sam o brown so sob um (laughs) was uh blake edwards writing credit and uh, he was replaced with Richard Benjamin, and then on Stick. So Stick was, you know, theoretically going to be kind of Reynolds' comeback movie after several movies that flopped with the public and with critics. And you know, Stick was this movie based on an Elmore Leonard novel, set in Florida, so right in Reynolds' wheelhouse. And and I think it's actually a pretty good movie, but it was it, it was it was plagued with with problems. Basically, uh, Reynolds turned his cut into the studio to Universal, and they did not like it. and. That he reshoot, do a lot of reshoots, add this subplot with a little girl that is one of the weak spots of the movie for sure, and that he didn't really want to do. But his agents talked to him, said to him, Look, this will be good for your career. You want to be thought of as difficult. You you should do these things. He kind of just threw up his hands and gave up and kind of directed these reshoots and re edited the movie, but his heart wasn't in it. And you know i think the public and the critics were all you know smelled something before the movie came out because you know trailers for that movie ran forever i mean i remember seeing like seeing trailers for that thing and going when is this coming out because it took so long for them to get through all the reshooting and recutting and they were they were promoting it before the movie was really finished and it kept getting delayed so by the time it came out a i think people just to kind of they're already sick of the trailers they they they, they the they lost whatever anticipation they had You know, people got the sense that it was a movie that had been messed with, so it got bad reviews all that. But, you know, it wasn't – it's not a bad movie. And it's – again, I think as a director, I think if you look at Sharky's – Gator, Sharky's Machine and Stick, they're a very interesting trilogy kind of – Contemporary film noir trilogy with Burt as these kind of weary, tarnished knights, and that kind of paves the way for his next movie, uh, or at least the, the next movie where he was uh, where he was the star. Right? You know, this movie called Heat that he did, not to be confused with the Michael Mann movie, but he did this movie after Stick called Heat, which was another Trouble production, but another also pretty good movie, actually. Um, but he, the original, it was originally, uh, it, it, was, it was written by R- William Goldman, the famous screenwriter, um, who, it was based on his novel. He'd written this novel about this guy who was like an ex-mercenary turned bodyguard in Las Vegas, um, and who has, who's kind of self-destructive and gets gets involved with all these strange characters. I love and wonder what I do if uh, somebody pull a gun on me
5: probably have to you a lot though what would you do you know I mean, just let's just say somebody pulls a gun on you run <laughs> no I mean it really and truly what would you do if he was standing 20 feet away and I uh, didn't have anything in my hands I'd be in trouble but if he got up close to me got a little Hollywood on me dead like that I'd stick it up his ass oh, I could never do that Does it have to be uh, Maybe it has to be in your nature or something You uh, you're probably basically a violent man No I'm not I'm just good at it Did you ever lose a fight? Think there'd be some sort of embarrassment factor? You ever embarrassed? That's really what you're worried about isn't it? Being embarrassed you know what's crazy you're not even 30 and you're set for life I'm way over 40 and I'm broke maybe I can help you with that how's that can I speak freely with you my father was addicted he was a compulsive gambler just like you you're full of shit why are you here Why haven't you left yet? Because I don't have the money.
0: You had it tonight. You
5: keep your mouth shut.
4: I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong.
5: All right, you're not wrong. If I got the two hundred fifty thousand, I would have wanted half a million. I'm an addict. I'm an addict, you happy? No, I'm not happy, I'm just... All I'm saying is,
3: maybe we do have something common. Maybe we could help each other out. You know, I feel we could.
5: Crash course
0: in bravery. God help us. Brent Reynolds read that book and loved it and thought it would be a good movie, so he approached Goldman about doing a movie Uh, Goldman wrote a screenplay and Robert Altman was originally supposed to direct it. And Altman did not like the screenplay that Goldman had written. Um, But he liked Goldman as a person and he couldn't figure out how to get Goldman to do the rewrites he wanted. And he never really did. And so Altman quit, Altman quit the movie kind of on a technicality. He, he basically saw his way of getting out of the movie being that the cinematography he wanted was from another country, maybe Canada or something. And, uh, the fact that this guy couldn't get a work visa, Altman uses as his excuse to quit the movie, uh, saying, "You know, well, I can't get, my, I can't have my DP." So, uh, so allegedly, Altman shot a day, one day on he and then quit. And so he was replaced by this guy, uh, Dick Richards, who got in a fist fight with Reynolds <laughs> on the set. Ended up suing Reynolds for twenty five million dollars over the fist fight. But he got in a fist fight on the set, so Richards was was <laughs> fired or quit. And this guy, Jerry Jameson, came in to uh, – oh, I'm sorry. No, no, Richards he got in the, the fist fight, but somehow they talked him into coming back. They talked him into coming back to the movie. So he came back, but then he fell off of a camera crane <laughs> he had an accident. <laughs> so then he was out for good, and he was replaced by this guy, Jerry Jameson, kind of workhorse, work, you know, uh, journeyman director who had done one of the airport movies and uh, some things like that. And so Jameson finished the movie, and according to William Goldman – there were two other directors on the movie who in, who he doesn't name goldman talks a little bit in in his book which lie did i tell um he writes about the making of heat and he claims there were five five or six directors on it and i've never been able to find out who the other ones are besides altman dick richards and jerry jameson but it's really saying something if you have five or six directors on a movie that shoots for 36 days you know and and ultimately the only one who was credited was was dick richards who completely disowned the movie and and as i say sued reynolds but so another kind of problem-plagued production and yet it sort of is the movie that kicks off this new phase of reynolds career this phase that includes movies like malone and physical evidence where the smiling Good old boy is completely gone. It's now this kind of world weary, Chandler esque, uh, again like kind of tarnished knight. You know, almost like a or like a Bogart kind of character. And 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 I and I think those mo- some of those movies, I think they're all better than people give them credit for being. Certainly, Stick is a good movie. Heat's a good movie. Malone's a good movie. I think Physical Evidence is a good movie. You know, I never saw. He did. He did a movie in there called Rent a Cop with Liza Minnelli that I never saw. That supposedly is terrible, but I've never, mm. I've never seen it. And, um, and those kind of movies are sort of the way he finished out the '80s. And I don't think any of them um, were particularly uh, successful for whatever reason. They, you know, they, they, just the audiences had just, they just had moved on. And I think part of it is that you know, it's City Heat came out around the same time as Beverly Hills Cop, which was as much a phenomenon in its time as Smokey and the Bandit was in 1977. And I think, and it was a phenomenon for, I think, the same reason, which is I think that in Eddie Murphy audiences saw this guy who just could wipe the floor with authority figure. Nobody could get one over on him. And with ease and a smile, he could just come in and make fools of all the authority figures. And so I think Eddie Murphy kind of, in the Christmas of 84 with Beverly Hills Cop showed that he could give audiences what Bert used to give them. And I think they kind of switched their allegiance and, and now Eddie Murphy was that guy and they weren't interested in it and Bert and, and audiences, you know, weren't interested in the new Bert. They weren't interested in the somber contemplative, uh, world weary Bert. I mean, I was, and I am, I still think those are good movies, but I think that's where he kind of, he just kind of fell out of favor, and and with the exception of he made a movie in nineteen eighty nine called Breaking In that was written by John Sayles and uh, directed I think by um, uh, what's his name the guy did Local Hero Bill Forsyth that was you know critically well regarded but but not um, yeah I don't think it ever found an audience so he kind of spent the last t- second half of the eighties just you know adrift but but before you feel too sorry for him I did read an article preparing for today I read, I read an interview with Reynolds uh, from around this time. And uh, he was getting two to three million bucks a pop for movies like Heat and Malone. So, you know, he he uh, he he was he was crying at the bottom of his third swimming pool or whatever it was. (laughs)
2: Let's shift into the 90s for a minute here. Well, let's more specifically, let's talk about, let's say, 1990 to 1997 During this period, you know, looking at these films, I'm just sort of going through the list right now. Do any of these movies I'm looking at, what, Meet Wally Sparks, Cop and a Half, The Player, Citizen Ruth, Striptease, of course, do do any of these stand out as a must-watch film in his filmography? Or is this kind of just some wasted time?
0: I mean, you know, I think that he, I mean, you know, the player is like just, he's playing himself. He walks on, he basically walks by the camera. And, um, you know, Citizen Ruth, I think, is the only one in that group that is a good movie. I mean, and, and, you know, and it's, it's, it's a, it, it is a good movie and he's good in it. And, you know, it's Alexander Payne's debut. So, you know, that's sort of the one, but that's really the only bright spot for him. And it was, you know, and it was more of a, you know, it was more of an art house thing that it wasn't, it wasn't like a mainstream success. I mean, the only, the only major, mainstream movie he was in between you know stick and 1997 is striptease, which you know to me all even you know it it felt a little forced i mean it felt like i liked the fact that he was getting to be in a big studio movie again and it was a it was a showy part you know he plays this congressman who's kind of likes to sniff the dryer lint from the (laughs) you know, laundromat where Demi Moore washes her panties. I, some, I don't remember exactly. Again, another movie I've, I haven't had the courage to revisit since it came out. And I wanted to love that movie. Cause I mean, it was him, you know, it was Andrew Bergman who I thought did some funny movies in the eighties, but it's, it's not a, it's not a good movie. So, and you know, meet while sparks I mean, all those movies, it felt like a period, you know, where, yeah, he was just kind of marking time and not, you know, the good parts weren't coming to him. And, um, you know, I'm trying to remember if I, you know, I think he was doing. Yeah, you know, he's doing a lot of TV in that in that period. A lot of you know guest spots. He was in actually he was in a TV movie that I kind of like called The Cherokee Kid. That's written by um, Tim Kazurinsky and Denise DeClue, I think. The same, you know who wrote you know Kazurinsky was like a great comic performer and writer on Saturday Night Live in the 80s, and then he wrote the screenplay for About Last Night, which is one of my favorites. Anyway, that The Cherokee Kid is kind of a fun little, but it was like a made-for-TNT or something, you know, western. So basically, you know, Reynolds in this period, I think, to most of the world, he, he just was completely uh, off the radar, you know, and at, at a time when, again, his his friend and parallel movies track movie star Clint Eastwood was enjoying a kind of Renaissance and stuff like unforgiven and bridges of Madison County and perfect world and all that. One thing I should mention though, is that Burt Reynolds did have a fairly sizable success in the early nineties. Uh, those of us who are, Obsessed with movies, uh, you know, can forget that he was on a TV series called *Evening Shade* in the early '90s for about four years. It was a sitcom where he played a uh, retired football player who moves to rural Arkansas to coach a high school team, uh, and that was that was a pretty popular show. That he co-starred with Mary Lou Henner, Hal Holbrook, Ossie Davis, Elizabeth Ashley. It reunited him with his old friend Charles Durning, who had been in *Best Little ours in Texas. So it was a great cast. It was a nice show. Um, you know, pretty popular, so it's a little bit unfair, I I guess, to kind of speak as though the first half of the 90s was just this desolate wasteland for Reynolds, because he did have that success in television, but I think it still, at the time, in a way, you know, it still felt like a step down from his stature as one of the world's biggest movie stars, because back then, TV, it wasn't like now, where people, actors... Or who are big stars jump back and forth between movies and TV and it's all kind of viewed as the same. Back then TV was still kind of viewed as a lesser form in a way so I still think that even though he was a big star on that show it's, it's kind of indicative of the fact that he had maybe taken a little bit of a dip from the glory days of you know Smokey and the Bandit and, uh, and all that.
2: Now this of course brings us to 1997 and of course we're talking about Boogie Nights.
5: So what I'm trying to tell you Eddie is that it takes a lot of the good old American green stuff to make one of these things, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, you've got your camera, you've got your film, you got your lights, you got your sound, you got your lab costs, you got your developing, you got your syncing, you got your editing. Before you turn around, you spent maybe twenty, twenty five, thirty thousand dollars on a movie. That's a lot of money. But you're asking this. If you make a good one there's practically no end to how much money you can
4: make have you seen jack's house
5: no he will he'll see it you got maybe 15 20 guys standing around just making sure that your lighting is right but you can work out in the morning you can work out at noon you can work out at night doesn't matter If you don't have those juices flowing down there in the Mr. Torpedo area, in the fun zone. But you gotta get the people in the theater, you know, you need the big dicks, the big tits. Uh
3: oh here we go.
5: How do you keep them in the theater after they've come? With beauty? And with acting? No, I understand. (laughs) You gotta get them in theater you know you got to keep the seats full but i don't want to make a film where they show up they sit down they jack off and they get up and they get out before the story ends it is my dream it is my goal it is my idea to make a film that the story just sucks them in and when they spurt out that joy juice they just gotta set it they can't move until they find out how the story ends you know I want to make a film like that and I understand you know they have to make films I bait them myself you know that are a few laughs everybody fucks their brains out and that's fine that's my dream to make a film that is true right and
2: dramatic now you and I have done an episode on this a couple years ago we kind of paraphrased Reynolds career leading up to boogie nights and spent a lot of time talking about his performance in the film but I feel like it's worth revisiting since we're talking about his entire career so why don't we talk a little bit about his decision to take that role in Paul Thomas Anderson's boogie nights
0: yeah, well, and speaking in terms of speaking of him turning down roles, I mean, he turned down the role in Boogie Night several times before he finally said yes. And you know, he was not Paul Thomas Anderson's first choice. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson offered it to Albert Brooks, who turned it down. He offered it to Warren Beatty, who turned it down. Um, you know, and then he got to Burt. By the time he, I think by the time. Um, Paul Tom Sanderson got to Burt Reynolds you know he he needed to find somebody to play this part and I'm not sure why you know Brooks I mean Beatty's famous for you know he sure he's also famous for turning things down and for taking forever to make up his mind um, you know I always kind of as much as I love Burt Reynolds and Boogie Nights I wish there was an alternate universe where I could see the version with Albert Brooks as Jack Horner because I think that would have been an interesting movie too but anyway Burt Reynolds um, you know in spite of the fact that he was basically at the lowest point he had been since the 60s or 50s, uh, he did turn Boogie Nights down when, when Paul Thomas Anderson first offered it to him. He really didn't get it. He thought it was kind of, I think, a dirty movie. He did not like the character. He did not like the fact that he thought Paul Thomas Anderson was glamorizing porn, which I find very strange. You know, he talks about this in his book. That sort of, you know, Reynolds talks about it. Out. he wasn't comfortable with the way the movie is glamorizing porn. And I mean, this is a guy, there are more hookers and strippers in Burt Reynolds movies <laughs> than, you know, in all, all of showgirls. I mean, the, you know, Sharky's again, Sharky's machine, Gator, all these, like how many strip clubs and stuff are there in this movies? And I mean, how much, you know, uh, just, I, I mean, he's, yeah, he did some, Burt Reynolds, even you know, when he would direct, he did some sleazy stuff. So it's very, but for some reason he was put off a little bit by Boogie So he turned it down a bunch of times. P.T. talked him into doing it. He, he he talked him into doing it, according to Reynolds in the book. Uh, there was a point where he got mad at Paul Thomas Anderson w- during a conversation uh, where when Anderson was trying to talk him into doing it, and, you know, Reynolds was like, God damn it, don't you realize I'm not going to do this movie? And P.T. said to him, OK, if you can do that on screen, you're going to get an Oscar nomination. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, Bert, he, he basically, eventually Bert, Gave into doing it, but, you know, him and he he and he and Paul Thomas Anderson. And first of all, let me say, I mean, I know I said this on the other uh, podcast as well. You know, this to me, without question, this is the role of Burt Reynolds life. I mean, as an act like like there are other parts he had that were more had more, you know, star power or whatever. But just in terms of acting, in terms of him bringing nuance to a character and and complexity to a character and just everything he could convey with his body and his face and his line readings everything else it's one of the great performances in the history of movies it's certainly his best performance uh and yet it is a it is a movie i still don't think he's he he, he's he never liked it he didn't like it at the time he didn't like working with paul thomas anderson and in his book he you know i think i think he I think his relationship with Paul Thomas Anderson, who to a certain degree was kind of like his relationship on screen with Mark Wahlberg's character. Like, I think he saw Paul Thomas Anderson as this young punk who thought he knew better than him. And, you know, Bert, I think had a big chip on his shoulder by the time he came into this movie because he wasn't a star anymore. And and I'm sure that he probably, even though he knew a lot of it had to do with his own bad choices, you know, I'm sure he was watching his friend winning Oscars and being treated by the critical establishment with respect and and having huge hits and you know I'm sure he was watching all that and feeling resentful that he's doing stuff like Meat Wally Sparks and the and Striptees and the maddening and whatever and so I think he came into Boogie Nights you know with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder and he's probably looking at this guy Paul Thomas Anderson having the you know who's getting the world handed to him at 20 whatever directing this movie you know he was a little bit he was a little jealous I'm sure and he was a little competitive and and he You know, on the the one hand, he grudgingly admits in the book that Anderson pulled this performance out of him. And he also grudgingly admits that, you know, Anderson had had like a good grasp of film history, which is something that Reynolds respected because he always was amazed by actors and directors who didn't know a lot about film history. And so, you know, I think there's a very telling um, there's a telling story about when they were shooting the, the, the opening, the famous opening shot of Boogie Nights, which, is of course, you know, a long, unbroken steady cam take. It starts on a crane and then the steady cam follows Burt Reynolds and Julianne Moore into this disco, and you're introduced to all the main characters in one take. When they were shooting that, at one point in between takes, Reynolds went over to Paul Thomas Anderson and he said, My God, have, have you timed this? Is this, uh, you know, is this as long as the long take in, in Touch of Evil? And Anderson said something to Reynolds, like, You know, yeah, it's 30 seconds longer. And and I think that spoke to both what Reynolds respected about Paul Thomas Anderson and what he didn't like about him, which was he respected the fact that Anderson knew that and knew en- knew enough about the tradition of film to know what he was building on, but also it, Reynolds didn't like how arrogant the kid was. And it was like yeah, I'm going to top Orson Welles, you know, which of course is what makes Boogie Nights for me the greatest movie ever made, is that it is somebody who's out who's out to make the greatest movie ever made, and in my opinion succeeds. But but anyway, so you know you know Reynolds. I, I, he was uncomfortable the whole time making the movie. He had he he didn't like saying the profanity. There's there's a scene in the movie where Reynolds says, "Uh, you know, fucker in the ass," and he did not want to say that line. And he fought with for half a day with Paul Thomas Anderson about it. And he said, "You know, can't you can't you rewrite this line and make it something that's more comfortable for me?" And Anderson said, "No, you were hired to say this line," and. It's funny because I think when he says the line in the movie, it benefits in a way from the fact that he didn't want to say it because he just kind of tosses it off with this weary resignation that works perfectly for the character and where the character is at that point. And who knows, maybe Paul Thomas Anderson was even kind of playing games with him to get that kind of weary resignation because I, you know, he, he could have changed the line. That line doesn't need to be in the movie. It's not that important. So, yeah. I. But anyway, Reynolds and they you know, he went through this whole thing and then uh, the first. The story I was told uh, by Walter Hill, who was friendly with Reynolds at the time, you know, according to Walter Hill, the first time Burt Reynolds went to a screening of Boogie Nights, he fired his agent afterwards. Like he thought this was going to be the movie that was really going to ruin his career. I don't know how he thought it was going to do anything worse for him than the movies he'd been doing, but he thought he was completely done now and um, fired his agent. Of course, you know, cut to the movie comes out, is critically acclaimed. Reynolds go, you know, gets a a golden globe is nominated for an Oscar, all of these things. Um, and, you know, so now I, you know, in his book, he kind of, I, I feel like he just has this very strange relationship with that movie where he, you know, I think he's, he's proud of his accolades that he got for it. And he, you know, it gave him the thing he'd wanted his whole life, which was an Oscar nomination. He, you know, he, he used to say, Oh, I'd rather have a Heisman trophy than an Oscar. But in the book, he he admits that that was a lie. You know, he wanted an Oscar. And he was completely depressed the night that he lost the Oscar for Boogie Nights. I think it was to Robin Williams for Good Who A Haunting. And, uh, you know, he went back to his hotel room, wouldn't answer the phone, was laying in his bed, uh, just feeling sorry for himself alone. And his friend John Voight uh, basically stole a, a, a waiter's uniform and then paid somebody at the hotel to give him a pass key and went into snuck into Bert's room pretending to be room service in the middle of the night and before uh, Bert realized who it was Voight like ran up to him in the bed and kissed him on the mouth and then like uh completely you know like that sort of broke it broke Bert's funk and he just started laughing hysterically and then had a good night you know with his buddy John Voight but anyway he was he he's you know I think he wants to he sort of wants to embrace it because look he's he never got the kind of acclaim before that That he got for that movie And he never has since And he's never given a better performance And it's uh, You know I, I, I still find it sad That he He won't acknowledge How great the movie is And how great he is in it He claims in the mo- in the book He's never watched the movie From beginning to end That he's just so uncomfortable With the subject matter You know And But I think I think also part of it is the re- I think part of the reason Burke doesn't embrace that movie Is that Ultimately, you know, he I think he always prides he prides himself on the fact that he is a movie star for the flyover states, that he's not that he's he's you know, that he's a movie star for the, the Trump voters. and He's a movie star for the working class. and He's a movie star for the South and the Midwest and not the New York and L.A. elites, not the kind of people who give awards and all that. And he sort of prides himself on that. And, I, th- you know, he I think that, you know, he he mentions in the book that, like, those kind of people looked at Boogie Nights like it was a porno or something. Mm. You know, they didn't, they didn't see it as what it was. They, and so I think he was, I don't, I think he was a little embarrassed by the movie with his friends in Jupiter, Florida. You know, I think when he, you know, when he goes to the Costco in Florida, the people there, uh, you know, look at Boogie Nights as this weird porno Bert did. And so I, I just, he, and I think, you know, he wants to be both. He wants to be, you know he wants what again? He wants what Clint has. Clint somehow managed to have it all. Eastwood was the critical darling who also you know everyone in the South and the Midwest loves. You know a movie star of the people, all that. And Burt wasn't able to pull it off. Um, you know, and and so I think that's part of why he doesn't like Boogie Nights. But it's uh, but it's a shame because it's it, it could have been his Pulp Fiction. It could have been what Pulp Fiction was for Travolta. That's what Boogie Nights could have been for Burt Reynolds. But Burt Reynolds. I think, you know, he didn't embrace it at the time, and he he also just made a bunch of dumb decisions after it, you know, in terms of the movies he took. You know, he could have—you know, John Travolta, after Pulp Fiction, you know, did really good movies, worked with some really good directors. You know, I think Burt Reynolds has, I think, his ego, in a way— he probably should have been more like Eastwood and just directed his own movies. And maybe he would have had a different kind of career. Because I don't think, I think much in the way that Eastwood wasn't comfortable working with Blake Edwards on City Heat and just had to fire him, you know, I don't think Burt Reynolds is comfortable with other people telling him what to do. And so I think he he's, he's if given the choice between, you know, like even though P.T. Anderson directed him to this Academy Award nominated performance, he says in the book he would never work with Paul Thomas Anderson again. Um, that he's just not his kind of director. And it's like, Oh, the kind of director who makes movies that win you awards and, and make, you know, and, and acclaim and, and all that. I mean, he, he would rather do a, a movie with somebody. I think, I think he likes to be able to be superior. He likes to be able to boss the directors around a little bit. You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, what it is but if but his you know he after boogie nights instead of you know I, i'm sure that he you know there's no reason that burt reynolds shouldn't have after that movie done stuff with with people like tarantino or gus van zant or whoever i mean you know they it, it's certainly tarantino who who loves them i mean tarantino loves navajo joe so much that half the score of kill bill is is music cues from navajo joe and he's and he uses music cues from White Lightning as well. But you know, Bert, his decision instead of like you know going after those kinds of people and saying, "Hey, let's work together on something," uh, he he took basically took an enormous paycheck from TNT to do a bunch of crappy made-for-TV. Uh, movies, I think they're called Hard Case or Hard Time, or I don't know. There was like the series of movies he did a bunch of right after that, and you know he did like Universal Soldier Two and Universal Soldier Three, and and just I mean you look at his filmography after Boogie Nights, it is it's mostly movies that you haven't heard of. If you did hear of them you know, and saw him, they weren't that good. You know, he just never, I, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's a combination of never getting, he never got over wanting the big payday ver- and never got over his own ego, I think. Cause you know, he really, I mean, you read his book and the only director practically that he has anything good to say about is John Borman. I mean, I guess he says a little, I mean, I'll need him, you know, I mean, I guess he, he's, he says a few nice things about Alan Pecula here and there, but for the most part, you know he he clearly has no he clearly thinks he could have done it better than most of the directors he worked with and I think when you have that kind of mentality as an actor it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because you're not going to attract great directors to work with you if you're just going to be a pain in their ass all the time yeah. you know they, they, don't, they don't need it the great ones don't need to put up with it and the ones who will put up with it I mean and I, and I don't want to disparage the people who made uh, some of the other movies that he did did afterwards because in a lot of cases I you know frankly I didn't see them I don't know, it's just, uh, he just remains a complete mystery to me. I mean, he should have at least, after Boogie Nights, had the kind of career that Robert Forrester had after Jackie Brown, where, you know, Forrester didn't necessarily, he didn't necessarily become the biggest movie star in the world, but he did a lot of good movies after Jackie Brown, he still continues to to work, he's on the new Twin Peaks, you know, and and, I mean, Reynolds, I think, could have had at least that, because he was coming from a bigger place, but... I I don't know why he didn't.
2: Now, you sort of just touched on what I wanted to talk about next, which was kind of Burt's career post-Boogie Nights. So I guess the question I have is, what now for Burt Reynolds? I mean, he's 81 years old. Uh, Is he going to do anything else worthwhile, anything noteworthy? Because like you just said, he doesn't get along well with directors, and any really great director isn't going to offer him a role unless... He agrees to their terms. So I guess the question is, have we seen the last of Burt Reynolds in anything good?
0: Well, he you know, the funny thing is he still is hungry for it. I mean, I think his you know, his health isn't great. I think that the kinds of parts he can do are somewhat limited because I think he's physically just not in great shape anymore. But um, but I think that, you know, he's still hungering for a great part. He, he wants you know, he talks about it in every interview I see him do. He talks about it in his book that he's still. You know, he's still looking for another good part, a part of his deliverance uh, all these years later. So I think he's hungry for it. But I think that if he's going to get it, you know, he does have to assert. I I do think actors to a certain point, you know, they have you you have to give yourself over to the director a little bit and trust them if you're going to do something truly great. I just don't think it works without doing it. And look, I understand Burt Reynolds point of view. You know, he probably any set he goes on now. He's the most experienced person on that set. No question. You know, he probably does know a lot more about a lot of things than, a, a you know, a 25 or a 30-year-old or even a 45-year-old director who he's going to get on, on the set with. But that doesn't mean – but the problem is movies only work when – with a few exceptions. They, they generally only work when you have a director with an uncompromised point of view. And Reynolds should know that because – You know, when he directed a movie that got taken away from him, Stick, it didn't turn out to please him or anybody else. Um, So you have to kind of give yourself over to the director. And I don't know if he has is capable of it or not. Um, You know, he's in a movie. There's a movie he did that has not come out yet, but that just premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival um, called Dog Years. I don't know too much about it, except that it's you know, it's it's getting some good reviews you know he's sort of he's playing a um, an aging movie star in it which is you know well well suited to him obviously you
5: know son, this is the exact spot where I proposed to my first wife great and then everything went wrong I had this little ring box, you know, and I, I was so excited when I opened it <laughs> that the ring went flying out right into the water. And naturally, I jumped in after it. I never found it. So I got a piece of seaweed and I made a ring of it. got down on one knee, put it on my finger and... She just thought that was great. Anyhow, we still said yes, and when we heard music coming from the dark, we danced right here. And then, well, we always talked about we'd come back here someday. But we never did
0: um it was directed by a guy named adam rifkin who's you know screenwriter director who's done some good stuff and and theoretically you know certainly is capable of making a really good movie so uh anyway this movie you know that's that's going on the film festival circuit right now you know we'll see what that does if that's because he's this he's the star of it it was a part that was kind of tailored for him maybe it's his his comeback movie um you know i i never write anybody off because you just never know i mean you just never know and 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 I think most actors and directors, who people do write off, you know, they've they've mostly still got something to give. And I think in Burt Reynolds' case, it is just about can he get out of his own way if someone if somebody brings him, you know, a great script. If somebody brings him his heartache, eight, like when Paul Thomas Anderson brought Philip Baker Hall hard eight. If somebody brings that to Burt Reynolds and he if he's capable of recognizing it, because again, he never recognized that Boogie Nights was a great script. So it, it could just be a taste issue. He just might not have. The taste that's going to bring him back but you know at the end of the day you know it's really easy for guys like me to sit and armchair quarterback his career and say oh poor you know it's too bad that Bert never you know did anything after boogie nights worth talking about and it's like well First of all, he did Boogie Nights. If, the, if Boogie yeah. Nights was the only thing he ever did, that's more than you or I or most of the people listening to this podcast are ever going to do with their lives. There, you know that that is more than anyone else is going to leave the world with. You know, and he did all of those other uh, movies that we talked about, and you know some great movies that we, we didn't talk about. Uh, so you know, the guy has had look by any measure, he's 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 given a ton of great performances. He's made a ton of great movies. He's done a bunch of good or okay movies that for whatever reason at the time they came out you know pleased the audience like Cannonball Run. So uh, you know Burt Reynolds at the end of the day is what he's 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 one of the major figures in in American movies whether or not he's consistent. I mean I think he, I think he's very inconsistent, but I would measure his high points up against almost anyone else's high points. Excellent. And, and at, at the end of the day that's all that matters.
2: And I think on that note we'll end the conversation there. Jim, thank you again so much for coming on the show. You're the only member of the five-time club of How Is This Movie, so I really appreciate it. Thank you for all your amazing insight, as always. Now, if people want to follow you on social media, what's the best way to find you?
0: Best thing is I've got a, a website that's just uh, jimhempilfilms.com and then um, my Twitter is uh, Jimmy Hemphill, J-I-M-M-Y-H-E-M-P-H-I-L-L is my uh, Twitter handle. All
2: right, Jim, thank you, as always, and we'll talk soon.
0: All right, thanks a lot all for right. having
2: me. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank Jim Hemphill for joining me on How Is This Movie for this excellent discussion of the career of Burt Reynolds. As a quick reminder, both of Jim's feature films, Bad Reputation and The Trouble with the Truth, are now currently streaming on Amazon Prime. So my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.
1: Though your hair is all tangles and your makeup is a mess. The most of what you're drinking is spilling down your dress. And to keep from falling off your bar stools but all that you can do, I make my proposition because I'm just as drunk as you. Let's do something cheap and superficial Let's do something that we might regret Let's do something shabby and insensitive This might be the only chance we get you got lipstick showing on your teeth and a run down your hose. And where you got that cheap perfume? God only knows. Now I'll be glad to have you home long before daylight. The sun is your worst enemy. Thank God it's dark tonight. Let's do something cheap and superficial Let's do something that we might regret Let's do something shabby and insensitive This might be the only chance we get This might be the only chance we get